Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I have a quote towards the end from Richard II when he's meditating on his life in Shakespeare's play in prison. And he said, I wasted time and now doth time waste me. And I suppose if I regret anything about my life, it is those times in which I squandered time itself on secondary things, unimportant things, getting cross about trivia and so on and so forth. So in many ways, the book is a call to myself to sort of wake up and just value this brief sliver of light between these two infinitely thick walls of darkness that are what precedes our life and the death that follows it. So it's very much about not wasting a moment, seeing each moment as infinitely deep, infinitely complex, and as a great opportunity, as seething with possibilities. Are we attuned to our impending mortality? And do we waste a lot of time on the superficial stuff? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cal. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to look at two books that touch on some of the more important aspects of life. Our experience of time and living life to the limit. Historian, journalist and writer Michael Smith gets inside the restless soul that was Ernest Shackleton and reveals a man trapped in a paradox. And should we use death to enhance our sense of life? Poet, philosopher and writer Raymond Tallis talks to me about the importance of facing death head on. This is a show about time and agency, risk and uncertainty, leadership and resolve. But first, a riveting tale of high action and adventure. Hello, my name is Michael Smith. I'm the author of Shackleton by Endurance We Conquer. I'm probably best known for writing An Unsung Hero, which is the biography of Tom Crean, which has become a bestseller and has really put Tom Crean on the map, but also highlighted the very significant role that Irish men played in this era of polar exploration. And it was largely overlooked, really, until I came along and wrote about it. Michael, is it fair to say that one person's biography is another person's lie? Because it's really down to what the writer is bringing in our understanding or interpreting. Well, any biographer is, of course, is making value judgments. I'm looking at the life of, say, Tom Crean or Shackleton, and I'm making value judgments about what they did 100 years ago, what they did under extreme duress Mm. 100 years ago. You know, try and do that yourself. So you're always ending up making judgments. Now, hopefully you, you make a rounded judgment. In the case of Tom Crean, there was very, very little original evidence to go on Mm. because he was a semi-literate man didn't leave behind very much in the case of Shackleton by contrast he was an educated man and he left behind diaries and lots of letters and of course lots of people have written about him over the years so Mm. I had a feast of stuff by comparison to the famine of Tom Crean. But Tom Crean was an intensely private man and he didn't court publicity. This is a very important point you see that Tom Crean retired from his role in the British Navy in 1920 Mm. which was was just about the worst time to come home and to be talking about having been in the British Navy and therefore he metaphorically and physically kept his head down quite rightly so his brother was shot dead by comparison you see Shackleton was part of the Anglo-Irish community he lived in in London from the age of 10 and therefore he wasn't here for the Irish rebellion and of course most significantly of all is that Shackleton died two days before the Anglo-Irish treaty giving
giving Ireland its independence was ratified by Dáil Éireann. So, you know, there's a certain symmetry in all mm. of that. But mm. Crean was left, in a way, to adjust and live with the consequences mm. of, of rebellion, the civil war, all of that, whereas Shackleton died before it happened. They were both very personable characters. And if I was to look at maybe one characteristic that they both shared, both Crean and Shackleton, they were both very loyal to their team. Both very, very loyal men. But the other characteristic which is outstanding and interesting in the sense that Shackleton, as I said, is a well-educated man. Tom Crean wasn't semi-literate. But what they both had was this tremendous mental resolve. Mm. They were both strong mentally. It's not just about being strong physically, putting up with all these uh, these expeditions, the duress of the ice and snow. Of course, you've got to be tougher. You know, let's not let's not beat about the bush here. But on the other hand, you've got. For example, when these guys are sailing the Southern Ocean in an open boat, freezing to death, starving, Tom Crean is at the tiller singing. Now, what does that say about a man, you know? It amazing, says a lot. amazing temperament, amazing resolve <clears throat> more than anything. Can I ask you, you said something very interesting earlier to me when we were walking up uh, the road. You said to me that one thing about Shackleton, he isn't a cardboard cutout figure. He's a very human guy. And part of being human, I suppose, is that he had his faults. Would it be fair to describe him as a walking paradox? Oh, I think there are two Shackletons. There's no doubt about that at all. The man at home was completely different to the man on the ice and, and at sea. He really was two different characters. At home, he was feckless. He drifted in and out of affairs. His business arrangements were an absolute shambles. He was spectacularly bad at business. In fact, he was spectacularly bad at pretty much everything he tried at home. Put him on the ice and he becomes a giant. And he is absolutely at home uh, he's a man who is capable of making life and death decisions the sort of decisions that you know we th- we think about it in simple terms today and you can say phrases like life and death decisions make no mistake these were you died if you got it wrong mm. and Shackleton was capable of making those mm. decisions you could trust Shackleton with your life on the ice but you couldn't necessarily trust him with your money or perhaps your wife um, because he was a bit of a philanderer and he's, as I said earlier his, his business dealings were utter shambles but if you're in a hole Shackleton's the man you call for and he was a leader par excellence uh, he re- really could inspire people and he made ordinary guys do extraordinary things mm. because he inspired in them the essential belief that they would get out of the awful awful predicament they found themselves in mm. and that's that's an extraordinary piece of leadership and he'd had no training for this it was just a natural trait that he had do you think he'd a mix of naivety as well as optimism and then sprinkle over a bit of vision <clears throat> There is a certain naivety about it. I suppose innocence, I'd prefer to use, would be a slightly better word. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, we're talking about the Antarctic. Hardly anybody had been there. I mean, the number of footprints in in the Antarctic could be counted on one hand at this point. There was nobody knew what to expect. So these guys were real pathfinders in every sense of the word. And one must never forget that it was Shackleton who paved the way to the South Pole for both Roald Amundsen, who got there first, and for Captain Scott, who followed him a month later. If it hadn't been for Shackleton, they would not have had the path to the pole found for them. It was found by Shackleton. So he's a very, very important man. That said, on the other side of Shackleton is the man at home. As I said, he's a complete rake by comparison. But he was a lovable rogue. How much of an outsider did he feel? Shackleton was always an outsider. He was, in a sense, he was born an outsider. He was part of the Anglo-Irish uh, heritage in Ireland in the 19th century. He was a Quaker, wasn't he? 
No, his early antecedents in Ireland were Quakers, but the family when he was born, they weren't Quakers. But they would have lived in and around a Quaker community, so they would have been influenced by the Quakers, is the right word to say about that. But the point is that Shackleton was a man who left Ireland when he was 10 and never really went back, but he popped in and out to do tours, lecture tours, basically. But he, he didn't really come home. But he always considered himself Irish. But, of course, in Ireland, he was too British... And in England, or in Britain rather, he was too Irish. So he was kind of caught between two stalls here. Similarly, one thinks about Shackleton today as a great hero. And if you stop people in the street and said, you know, have you ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? Of course they have. Mm. But go back a few years, and I don't mean many years, 20, 30 years, people had forgotten about Shackleton. He's a modern-day hero. Mm. He hasn't always been in the forefront. You know, when he died, they had trouble raising money to put a statue up to him. In Ireland, the place of his birth, there is one minor little commemoration of Shackleton, which is a, a blue plaque on a wall in a house in Donnybrook in Dublin. There is no memory at all of Shackleton elsewhere in Ireland, which is unbelievable when you think he is far and away the most outstanding explorer with an Irish birth. And if you were to look at a heroic figure in the popular imagination, it always comes down to Shackleton now. If you think people think of leadership, sure you've leadership courses based on his thinking. So how do you explain, was it that Scott somehow eclipsed him in so many ways? Yeah, uh, I mean you have to, you've got to bear in mind that uh, this the Shackleton hero worshipping that goes on today is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm. A phrase I use in my book is that Shackleton spent longer in the shadows in his life than he did in the spotlight, Mm. which is unusual. You know, if you go back to the 1950s, there was a biography written about him, and the the authors wrote in that book, in the foreword to that book, rather, that Shackleton had become a surprisingly vague figure. Now, Mm. can you imagine using that phrase about him today? I mean, that's not possible. And in terms of his business leadership, well, these rather earnest and tedious American business schools do uh, courses on leadership and things like that and they cite Shackleton as a kind of an inspirational leader and he was on the ice there's no doubt about that at all one man even went as far as to say that if Shackleton was alive today he'd be the next Bill Gates well that is laughable because Shackleton's business dealings were spectacularly bad they weren't just a little bit bad they were catastrophically bad he never made a bean in all the business ventures he did and yet today people are promoting him as a man who would be a great leader and the next bill gates well i don't think so maybe he was just a great improviser Shackleton's great strength was as a decision taker and certainly you're right he did improvise where necessary he wasn't a rigid thinking man Mm. he changed plans regularly if they weren't working Mm. and above all else he was a survivor He didn't see martyrdom as something that he wanted. You know, when he he got to within 97 miles of the South Pole and he turned back, he could have got to the South Pole. What a a fantastic achievement. But he wouldn't have had enough food to get home. So he would have died. He'd have got there, but would have died doing it. And what did he say to his wife? I thought you'd rather have a live donkey than a dead lion. Isn't that wonderful? But didn't she say once something on the lines of, you can't put an eagle in a barnyard or something on those lines? They had a quite an interesting relationship or certainly an interesting understanding of relationship. She was able to let him go. 
Emily Shackleton certainly understood her husband perhaps better than anybody else, but they had a very curious relationship because he was involved with lots of affairs with other women, and it would seem that she probably knew about them. Well, we don't know for sure, so it's it's difficult to be precise about that, but certainly she led an arm's-length relationship. He was what you might call a weekend husband, and it wasn't, it wasn't a great relationship, but she loved him to bits, and he loved her to bits. My own view, for what it's worth, is that Shackleton was a man for whom one woman wasn't enough. What about the children? He had three children, or they had, sorry, they had three children, and they led uh, very interesting lives. One of them uh, became Lord Shackleton and was became a very famous uh, in England because uh, he was one of Margaret Thatcher's advisers during the Falklands War in 1982. And so, yeah, the, the, the family was quite a strong unit, but she was the rock of the family. I mean, he was off. He said to her once, I'm only happiest at exploring, that's all I'm good for. And that's really what he was, you know. Yeah. He really was a caged animal, wasn't he? He was. When he was at home, I mean, the trappings of domesticity, earning a living, you know, do, doing the washing and uh, mopping the floors and all of that yeah. was not for him. He, just, yeah. he was just very uncomfortable and he was a restless tiger mm. in a way. You know, he was always looking to get out and do something new. But of course, he had no money and therefore he couldn't indulge himself as much as he wanted to. But he was a very, very restless man at home. And that's what made him a difficult man. I mean, he drank quite a lot. He had a lot of affairs with women. Uh, his business dealings were a shambles but then as I said you then transform this guy you put him on the ice mm. and suddenly he's a king tell me Michael you have been looking at so many different Antarctic explorers <clears throat> you've produced volumes on a whole range of guys how big a part did luck play in his life because he took tremendous risks maybe they were calculated risks quick thinking maybe in some mm. in some degree but I'm just wondering, was he just also very, very lucky? And he was very, very lucky maybe in how he selected his teams. I think there is absolutely no doubt that Shackleton was a lucky explorer. There are one or two crucial incidents in his life when luck was on his side mm. had for example had they experienced bad weather whilst crossing south georgia they would all have died there's no question about that and and there are several other incidents so he was a lucky explorer in that sense but he was also a man of phenomenal judgment and he knew how to take risks mm. and he never took unnecessary risks people think about him as a kind of swashbuckling character he wasn't at all mm. he was actually quite cautious his men used to lampoon him for being too cautious mm. But the crucial thing is that he was a survivor and he would never put at risk the lives of his men. And he, he did extraordinary things for his men. But if you look at descent within the team, it's very easy when you're dealing with rough conditions, different judgments of people and it may not be decisions people, team members may not be happy with. It was remarkable that in all the high stakes that there wasn't dissent amongst any of the team or maybe how he handled that that he was able to calm people in so many ways yes i mean there was dissent uh, certainly on the endurance expedition and there would have been dissent on other times because you've got 15 20 28 men all stuck together living literally on top of each other month after month so there's bound to be um, little squabbles but where it did break out he exercised his influence in a in quite a crucial way and uh, he led by example i mean there was one incident where a man you would call it a mutiny in some respects where a man refused to work and i think that in the extreme he would have had the man shot mm. if it disrupted the team mm. because he always put the safety and the security of his men first so anybody who risked that 
and his assumption was that if we stick in this together we'll all get out but if we start breaking off and going off into little groups then you're in trouble and that man he saw that man as putting that at risk mm. and I think in the extreme and I do mean in the extreme he would have had the man shot. Can I ask you, Michael, Roland Hunford wrote a book on Shackleton about 20 years ago, and it's an, it's an iconic book, a mm. hugely popular book. What did you want to say, and what more did you have to say about Shackleton? Because lots, you're, lots of people would have seen that as the definitive biography on Shackleton. Well, first of all, I would say Roland Huntford's book is outstanding. It's, it's one of my favourite books, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not here to... Uh, supplant Roland or mm. to, to, to be any better. What's happened surprisingly enough in your question you, you see you think it was it was quite recent mm. well that book was published 30 years ago so that's a generation ago you know mm. and now things have moved on in that generation and there is a you might call there's a different perspective about polar history certainly about Shackleton is today a much more popular and widespread figure than he would have been 30 mm. years ago. Yeah. Also, during that 30-year period, there have been diaries and books published about men, such as Tom Green, you know, which, for which I, you know, I would take credit for that. So there's been added material, and there's a new perspective. So I don't see myself in any way in competition with Roland's book. And, uh, I mean, I don't know him, but if I did meet him, I would be happy to shake his hand and say, what a lovely book you wrote. Yeah. But do you think it's fair that, to say that, in some way, have we misinterpreted some of his strengths and some of his weaknesses? It's a different perspective. That's yeah. all. I mean, my perspective on it would be slightly different. But on the other hand, if you sat down and wrote a book about Ernest Shackleton, you would come to slightly different conclusions. And that's what an author does. You know, I'm, I'm making valued judgments about my knowledge of the subject, my knowledge of the man, my research, all of that. So I'm reaching my conclusions. And 30 years ago, Roland reached his. And, and 30 years before him, a, a woman called Marjorie Fisher wrote a book about Shackleton and reached her own conclusions. So so we all reached different conclusions. And I don't think it's, it's a question of either or I think this is and mm. but within all of that he is a one-off if you were to compare him to some of the other Antarctic explorers is he the greatest he certainly is a one-off I suppose he falls short of greatness mm. because he didn't achieve the ultimate goal which was to reach the South Pole mm. And therefore, he falls just that short of greatness. And the, one of the reasons that he fell short of that greatness, which is a rather ironic thing to say, really, is that he lacked a bit of expertise in planning. He didn't plan too well for his expeditions. And had he done so, and had he adapted to more modern techniques, such as, for example, mm. the point I make in the book, really, is about the use of dogs. They, yeah. The British, and one, you know, in this context, Shackleton was British, never came to terms with dogs. Mm. They didn't understand how to dog. They saw dogs as pets, not as working animals, mm. and therefore they never could quite drive them properly. They never bothered to learn. I mean, there's that rather ironically funny story about Scott's expedition, the, the one on which he died. They bought Russian huskies, but nobody learnt the Russian for stop and go and right and left, <laughs> which is, you know, it's ironically funny, but and, and it's tragic, of course, but that was their attitude to yeah. dogs. They didn't quite understand them. Now, had Shackleton adapted for example, to the modern techniques that the Norwegians were using, by using dogs, for example, and other things, he would have got to the South Pole. There's no doubt about that at all. What question would you ask him today? If you sat down, we're here in Bantry, and you sat down this evening and had a point with him, what would be the one question you'd want to tease out with him? 
I'd want to get into the soul of the man as the writer. You know, I like I like probing away and uh, digging away in the entrails of people to find out what makes them tick. And I would, it's probably, it's an unfair question in a way, but I think I'd probably ask him more than one question because I'd be like, you know, all good journalists, I'd be probing away, trying to find out what made him tick and... Uh, what was his real ambition? Because we, ne- we you obviously, you never know for sure. He wanted fame and fortune, and he wanted to be remembered, I think. Mm. And I think he would, had he lived for the next 30 years, he would have been surprised how uh, little popular he was. But if he were alive now, he'd be astonished at how popular he is. I might get you to read out Robert Service's poem. It's a beautiful poem when you end your book on it. Shackleton was a very poetic man. He was brought up, his father was a great, loved poetry, and they, he, all the kids used to sit at his feet every night and mm. recite lines of poetry. So it was said when Shackleton was growing up, he could quote poetry by the yard. And when he, before he married his wife Emily, she'd introduced him to Robert Browning. Mm. And so you had this very dramatic, romantic Victorian poems, and they used to write lovingly to each other with little mm. quotes from Browning and Tennyson and whatever. And I thought I ought to end the book on a, on a line of poetry, because mm. I thought that was was very appropriate and um, I thought Browning would be absolutely appropriate because because that was the one that he loved and that's who he's associated with and then I thought no that's too predictable and the one thing about Shackleton is he's not predictable <laughs> and so I thought no don't do the predictable and I looked around and I came across these lines from Robert Service and Robert Service is interesting in the sense that the literati of the day didn't think much of Robert Service and so he in a sense like Shackleton was a bit of an outsider and uh, he wrote these words which in a sense he could almost have been thinking about Shackleton or certainly of his type and and that's why I, I thought I would end the book on these words so just bear with me there's a race of men that don't fit in a race that can't stay still so they break the hearts of kith and kin and they roam the world at will They range the field and they rove the flood, and they climb the mountain's crest. Theirs is the curse of the gypsy blood, and they don't know how to rest. was writer and historian Michael Smith, who I had the pleasure of meeting in Bantry over the summer at this year's West Cork Literary Festival. By Endurance We Conquer is published by the Collins Press and retails for about 20 euros. Okay, for those of you who are feeling a little bit short on inspiration and awe, well the good news is Michael will be giving a talk on Sir Ernest Shackleton at the National Library on Wednesday the 7th of October at 6.30pm. Michael's a smashing storyteller and teacher. And sure, it doesn't get better than Shackleton for bite.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Okay, let's keep with the theme of time, illumination, and question. What is a responsible life? How well are we living? And are most of us oblivious to the brevity of life? Raymond Tallis is one of Britain's greatest living polymaths. Yes, this man is quite the all-rounder, a poet, philosopher, writer and a recently retired professor of medicine at the University of Manchester. Now, since his retirement, Ray has devoted much of his life to writing. Ray's books include The Kingdom of Infinite Space, Aping Mankind and In Defence of Wonder. Well, Ray's latest book, The Black Mirror, Fragments of an Obituary for Life, is inspired by E.M. Forster's thought from Howard's End, where the great novelist writes... Death destroys a man. The idea of death saves him. So, yes, you've got it. In the Black Mirror, Ray creatively looks back at his life from the standpoint of his future corpse. Now, I know this book may sound a little offbeat, but I have to say, hand and heart, it's a deeply affecting, insightful and original book. I absolutely loved it. In the Black Mirror, Ray writes, Life is measured out at one level, in attention spans, our runs, our experience, our brief stories. And while the meaning of any given day drawn on thousands of previous days, the moments do not add up in simple ways to experienced whole days or the days to whole months. No one can be said to have lived a 70 or 80 year span, though the greystone may report that they did. The moments of our life are timeless in the sense of being lived more or less beneath the trellis of the calendar or even the clock. The experience of time and the time of experience don't quite know what to make of each other. The moment of pure experience, not bleeding into the future or beholden to the past. Between the tick and the talk, there is an escapement through which experience and time make their joint escape. I asked Ray, is the black mirror more about life than death? Well, it's very much the cue to the book, because the book isn't about death. But it's trying to assume a position, as it were, of our death, to look at our life and to realise its richness, its profundity, its multifariousness. From this Archimedean point of death, one can look back, as it were, on one's life as if from the outside. So you're writing from a standpoint of your future corpse in this very experimental way. I loved it now. And it's very philosophical. It touches on philosophy, memoir and some of the big ethical and moral questions in life. Can you talk me through how you are celebrating life in this book? I think the first thing to appreciate is just the sheer complexity of any ordinary moment in life. The complexity that's expressed in the spaces we occupy, the different kinds of spaces, whether they're the pockets into which we put our hands or the countries in which we're apart, the multiple spaces which we occupy. The second thing is the extraordinary ingenuity of the items we use to help us to get through life, to enjoy it more, to endure it, all the possessions we have. From the point of view of a totally dispossessed corpse, you can just see the mound of stuff that we have that just gets us through everyday life and all the ingenuity that's gone into that stuff. I'm particularly interested also in our senses and the complexity of the ordinary moment of consciousness, not only of individual senses, of what we see when we look in a visual field, but how all those senses get together and work to produce this sense of me, Raymond Tallis, here and now. Those are some of the things I explore, as it were, 
as someone outside of life pressing his nose to the window and seeing it. Now, the book is incredibly powerful, uh, Ray. It's it's exquisitely written. It's beautifully, beautifully written and it's very poetic in parts. And you bring out how anyone looks the idea of an ordinary life. There is no ordinary life. All lives are extraordinary. But yeah. one of the things that really jumps out in the book is the idea of wasted time and being present within our time. Yes. I mean, I have a quote towards the end from Richard II when he's meditating on his life in Shakespeare's play in prison. And he said... I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. And I suppose if I regret anything about my life, it is those times in which I squandered time itself on secondary things, unimportant things, getting cross about trivia and so on and so forth. So in many ways, the book is a call to myself to sort of wake up and just value this brief sliver of light between these two infinitely thick walls of darkness that are what precedes our life, and the death that follows it. So it's very much about not wasting a moment, seeing each moment as infinitely deep, infinitely complex, and as a great opportunity, as seething with possibilities. So do you think we've got it all wrong in all the busyness and all the to-do lists and all the rules that we set out for ourselves to live by? Do you think that we've been missing out on life in some way? I feel very, uh, very ambivalent about that because as a doctor, it was quite appropriate that I was very busy and had a big to-do list. As a father, husband son, ditto. So there's no escaping the complexity and the busyness of any responsible life. On the other hand, we sort of rather overdo it, and we spend too much time being busy. So much so that even our pleasures become a kind of treadmill. You know, we turn our recreation, our time of recreation into a treadmill of pleasure. So of course we have to be busy. Anybody who's at all responsible for others or feels responsible for others is going to be busy, going to have huge to-do lists. But on the other hand, we rather overdo it, and I suppose it's the sense of waking up out of the various imposed and self-imposed treadmills that the book is, is about. Now, you say the philosophical comforts are comfortless. Now, you've <laughs> written quite extensively on issues related to neuroscience, medicine and philosophy. I would consider all your writing very philosophical. So can you talk me through that one? Some of it is philosophical. I mean, a lot of my research in neuroscience was very practical, very empirical getting data about the best ways of rehabilitating stroke patients or doing clinical trials on the appropriate medication for people with epilepsy and so on. But neuroscience is a very interesting branch of medicine because it's that which touches most closely on our personhood. I don't believe we are our brains, but what I do believe is having a brain in a working order is one of the most fundamental conditions of being able to function in everyday life. So there is this extraordinary intersection between our neurological makeup and the extent to which we can or cannot flourish in life. I mean, it seems to me that it's a mistake to think that, for example, we are our brains or that we are just waves of nerve impulses and so on. Basically, neural activity is an essential and necessary condition of being a self of any sort, but it's not a sufficient condition. It's not the sum total of what we are. There's something that is at a distance from nerve impulses that defines what we are. I mean, there are many aspects of the brain as a material object and of nerve impulses as material actions, which really do not explain consciousness, even less higher levels of consciousness, such as love, our sense of beauty, wisdom, and so on and so forth. Just to take one particular example, when I'm aware of an object outside of me, say a glass in front of me, clearly the light coming from that glass triggers off nerve impulses in my brain. But my experience of the glass is more than just the nerve impulses. Because those nerve impulses 
cannot of their nature reach out back to the glass and locate it outside of me as something separate from me. This is something that philosophers talk about. It's so-called intentionality or aboutness. And that's not explained at all by neural activity in a material object. And it gets even more difficult when we try and explain human emotions and um, free will and so on and so forth. All of those things elude a neural explanation. Now, you have worked with very vulnerable, very fragile patients who have had, who suffer from epilepsy or who have suffered strokes. How has that challenged your understanding of life or your philosophy of life? It's, it's done two things. One is make me very aware of the extent to which our body in a reasonable working order is a necessary condition of flourishing in life in the sense of Clearly, if you have very, very severe brain damage, then the challenges are absolutely overwhelming to try and live a normal life. The other is it's made me aware of my own vulnerability, that at any given moment, the block of frozen urine could drop from the 747 and utterly transform my life, something of which I hadn't chosen. So I do feel a deep humility at the possibility that this person talking to, in a hopefully reasonably articulate way, could become unable to speak through some neurological accident. So it's made me aware of, of our vulnerability. Now, one of the things that really is brought out in the book is the idea that how we all try and avoid death in some ways, but we get intuitions of mortality in everyday life. So whether it's the end of the day in light falling or the end of the summer months or whatever it is, but we all seem to avoid the idea that we are improbable in so many different ways as human beings. Yes, I suppose because I've never known a world without Raymond Tallis, I somehow assume he's going to be a feature of the world forever. And so I I rather overlook my own improbability. I overlook the fact that it took 13.8 billion years to produce me. I overlook the fact that I have 7 billion fellow human beings who basically feel they are themselves as indispensable as I do feel. It's very easy to overlook these things. And our sense of our importance, our significance our inevitability is reinforced by others, those we love and whom whom we love in turn. They make us seem essential, make life seem um, unthinkable without us. But actually one of the great philosophical exercises is to imagine the world continuing in one's own absence. And in the book I talk about Raymond Tallis, but of course it's not about Raymond Tallis, it's about homo sapiens, man, woman, anyone. And I think all of us find it almost impossible to imagine the world carrying on in, in, in our absence. Now, I'm just wondering, how did your children read this book or how did they view it? Because you've some, you have your funeral music planned and I might compliment you. You have Strauss's Four Last Songs, which is an exquisite piece of music and you have Beethoven's Glorias. That must have been very difficult for your children to read some of this. Uh, well, yes, they haven't read it yet. And of course, they're grown up now. So well, you're I've still their father who our fathers, uh, we think, will live forever. You well, know? of course. But I, I think they are fairly attuned to the idea of you know, mortality. They've seen their grandparents die and so on. And I suppose, hopefully, that they, like anybody else, would take from this book not an increased fear of death, but a determination to use death, that wretched enemy, to, to enhance our sense of life, to make the shining hour shine more brightly. So what you're recommending sounds almost like a practice, that if we write down and imagine that we are dead and revisit the moments in our life or what we took for granted, that we maybe will just appreciate life more. 
Absolutely, and not just the present moments, but looking back on the past. And one of the things I think about in the book is one could imagine one's own biography as just as a succession of splashes of light, whether it's the light that fell on the leg of the teddy bear in your nursery or a particular light you remember seeing through the window when you were on holiday with the children or whatever. And it is an invitation for people to become tourists in their own lives uh, and by that means to discover how exotic they are. How, how amazing it is that they are these disparate things are stitched together to produce this particular individual. Can I ask you a little bit about the assisted dying? I know that you're a patron of dying in dignity, and you've said before that those who oppose assisted dying have a moral case to answer for. Well, uh, assisted dying refers really to, or, or the law that I hope would come into being, it relates to people who are terminal, who have a very short life expectancy, who are in unbearable suffering that isn't media, isn't palliated by medication sufficiently. And it seems to me for several reasons that they, if they are of sound mind and have expressed a settled wish to die, we should respect that wish. Firstly, throughout medicine, my whole medical practice was based on respecting the wish of the patient, the principle of autonomy. Secondly, to, to insist that someone continues to suffer when there is no other end than death is extraordinarily cruel, it seems to me. And the third is that many people who cannot bear the suffering they're in will actually resort to alternatives which are much worse than a physician-assisted dying, often botched attempts at suicide or awful pilgrimages to Switzerland and so on. So for many reasons, I think a safeguarded law on assisted dying would be profoundly humane. And to resist that really is something that has to be explained. I find it personally inexplicable. I find it inhumane. Bad theology? Bad theology, possibly. And it's very interesting that uh, if you survey people who have religious beliefs, about 70% of them in in the UK uh, support assisted dying. But the leaders of the churches are opposed, with some notable exceptions. George Carey, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury a little while back, strongly supports assisted dying, using precisely the reasons that I've, I've mentioned. Do you think there's an empathy gap in society? I think it is because it's fair. I mean, both from personal experience and from experience as a doctor, I'm acutely aware that death can be unnecessarily awful. And one of them, in a way, relating to the book, I could make death work for me as something to enhance my sense of life. But the thought of an unbearable process of dying, that's different altogether. It's not death, I fear. Death is a limit to my life. It very much is a process of dying. And I personally would wish that by the time... I am facing the end, that somebody will assist me to die if I am terminally ill, clearly wish to suffer no longer, and my suffering cannot be controlled by palliative care. Now, Ray, you end The Black Mirror beautifully. Your last chapter is called Coda, and you, you start off with a very inspirational line saying, while we cannot awaken the dead, the dead may awaken us. That stopped me in my tracks and really challenged a lot about how I live every day and how I use my time and how I experience my time. Is that what the intention of the book is, really? That is absolutely what it's about. You, you put your finger on it. Yes, yes. We, we want to make death work for us. In a sense, we want to make death and the notion that we are limited and that everything we love will pass make us value all of those things more. Hence, thinking about our own death and thinking about those who have passed on ahead of us can awaken us to the extraordinary mystery and miracle of our own lives. And Ray, you say, listen to the clock and mist, the sunlit brute of our busy hours. I might get you to read that because it's a powerful conclusion to your book and you will do it infinitely better than me. Thank you.
Let us stand once more in front of a mirror, mindful that the item we are looking at will in due course be our corpse. Listen to the clock amid the sunlit brewery of our busy hours, the phone ringing, the train to catch the vital meeting, the to-do list growing ever longer, ticking more loudly against the silence of death's grand negative. And then, awakened by death, let us bid farewell, or alas, au revoir, to our respective corpses. Come back from the dead to change the world or our lives, or simply to relish that it is still possible to put the kettle on, look out of the window, and exchange smiles with another human being. Le vent se lève, il faut tenter de vivre. The wind rises, we must try and live. Wow, what beautiful words, sir, from Raymond Hallis.
The Black Mirror, Fragments of an Obituary for Life is published by Atlantic Books and retails for in around 20 euros. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now, next week, Talking Books will be delving into the intriguing world of Don DeLillo, the American novelist who brought us gems like Libra, White Noise, Underworld, Falling Man and Point Amiga. So lots to look forward to there. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's show with some insightful words from the great Roman philosopher and dramatist Seneca, who wrote in his essay on the shortness of life. Life is long, if you know how to use it. Good night. Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108.